Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, it's always interesting to look at new ideas in the hobby, or even not-so ideas from a slightly different angle, isn't it? Now, we've written and discussed the flooded forests of South America so many times here in The Tent, and they're probably among the most compelling habitats we've encountered during our search for interesting ones to replicate in our aquariums. It's something I'm totally personally obsessed with. It's all over the brand. It's something we've talked about for years now, so I, I can imagine you're probably sick of hearing from me. But South American forests and, 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 and the surrounding aquatic environments are just fascinating. And in fact, they're seasonally inundated with fresh water. That's what fascinates us so much. Now, these forests are perhaps nature's finest example of that interaction between land and water and how diverse and surprisingly productive you know, aquatic environments actually arise in these habitats. Now, there are two types of inundated forest areas or black water systems known as igapo. And the counterpart, white water systems, are, are called varzea. The igapo is characterized by seasonal inundations, which are caused by a large amount of rainfall. And thus, in some areas, the trees can be submerged for up to six months out of the year. We've touched on the idea of replicating this habitat, you know, repeatedly. Um, and it's probably something you should check out. Now, these forests, they have sandy, rather acidic soils with very low nutrient content. Then the rainwater combines with the humic substances and tannins contained in the soils and the forest floor materials that are found on them. And so it creates this interesting environment. The acidity from the water uh, corresponds to the acidic soil of these forests. They're more nutrient poor than a comparable Varzea forest and carrying less inorganic elements, yet higher concentrations of dissolved organics like humic and folic acids. So Amazonian Varzea forests, on the other hand, are flooded by nutrient-rich sediments and are thus very productive environments, in fact, some of the most productive in Amazonia. They're flooded by whitewater rivers, which inundate fertile alluvial soils within the Varzea forests, which helps explain some of the higher nutrient concentrations found in these waters, as opposed to the nutrient-poor black water, which inundates and characterizes the agapo environment. Now, Obviously, a flooded, floor has, a flooded forest floor has a lot of leaves and botanical materials accumulated, which influence the topography and water chemistry of the habitat. Often, these, ideas, these uh, areas they form like little channels a few meters wide and result in what are called meanders, which are pockets of water that course away from and back to the main streams. During the low water season, you'll see the leaf litter accumulating in these meanders, and the diversity of life within them is amazing. Now, these terrestrial habitats are seasonally inundated by that significant rainfall that's, you know, common to the region. Some of these forest floors may be submerged, as I mentioned, for almost half a year. It's a lot of water, like 3 to 4% of the water in the Amazon basin at any given time. And these are precious, diverse natural treasures. So replicating one in the home aquarium is just another way to learn about them, isn't it? Now, there's two seasons in the Amazon, as you've surmised, the dry season and the wet season. From December until May or June, we have the wet season. And from July until November, there's the dry season. The low water period is from August until February, and the high water period is from March until July. Igapo forests have pretty significant amounts of trees. In fact, one study found that over 30 species of trees are found in these areas, which creates coverage of something in the order of 30%. And they're known to have soils that are acidic in nature, yet low nutrient content because they don't receive that seasonal influx of nutrients like the region's known as the Varzea, which we talked about already. The water depth can vary from as little as 6 to 8 inches to almost 20 feet. And this influx and egress of water can happen really quickly. And of course, as a result, uh, all the natural you know, materials uh, that the waters flow through, they have a lot of tannin and humic substances in them from all the plants and soil. And as aquarists, this you know, 
dynamic environment is incredibly inspiring. The Agapo Habitat can really help you flex your creative muscles, and it offers that dual challenge of creating something unique while holding back and not going too crazy with tons of detail. Rather, a few stronger elements punctuated with some of the smaller details provided by the botanicals can create this really engaging, mysterious, and inspiring display. And as we've talked about many times here, Amazonian leaf litter beds are home to a surprising variety and population density of fishes, with some studies of agapos yielding as many as 20 to 40 different species in a 200 square meter area. That's a lot of different fish. And the majority of the specimens found in these areas are small, ranging around 40 millimeters to 100 millimeters, which is about an inch and a half to four inches in length. Little fishes like we like. This is interesting from an aquarist perspective, because of course we can create a pretty dynamic and interesting environment with lots of cool small fishes if considerations are made for tank size, filtration, and husbandry. And of course, that was the basis of my urban agapo idea that I've been talked about over the months here, starting out with a dry terrestrial habitat and gradually flooding it to simulate the seasonal inundations which these habitats go through. I've done this whole cycle now something like 14 times in three aquariums, nuancing various aspects like soil composition, planting, and fish stocking along the way. It's become one of my fave projects, and I hope to see many of you playing with the idea too. I think that it's not only simple as an enjoyable hobby within a hobby, it's a dynamic that we can and should learn more about. When we flood and, you know, desiccate an aquarium attempting to replicate the cycle, we have to learn to manage a number of different dynamics, ranging from varying levels of nutrients to the nitrogen cycle management to stocking with fishes. And the seasonal dynamic, it's broad-reaching, it's multifaceted in the aquarium just like it is in nature. We know this from our extensive research and discussion of this habitat. However, as aquarium people, have we given much thought to this habitat during the dry season? Stone and sandbanks often occur along these, you know, rivers during the low water season. So there is cause for potentially putting some stones in your aquarium. Now, the forest floors are typically littered with leaves and seed pods from the, you know, canopy overhead. So with so much of this material on the forest floor, the potential for this amazing ecosystem in both the wet and the dry season is pretty much assured, isn't it? Conceptually, this is absolutely ripe for replication in the aquarium. I mean, Thinking of your aquascape on a 365-day basis sort of changes your perspective. Understanding what you're trying to recreate in an agapo-inspired aquarium is a representation of the dry forest floor inundated by water. It's that simple. So think dry forest floor when you construct the aquascape, and that's going to influence what your aquarium looks and functions like when you've ultimately add water to it. And of course, when the rains return, that's when the real magic happens. You know, the formerly terrestrial environment is now transformed into this earthy, twisted, incredibly rich aquatic habitat which fishes have evolved in, you know, over eons to live in and among and utilize for food and protection and spawning areas. And all the botanical materials, grasses, shrubs, fallen leaves, branches, seed pods, all that stuff suddenly submerged. And currents redistribute this stuff all over into little pockets and stands affecting the now underwater topography of the landscape. Leaves begin to accumulate. You get those big leaf litter beds. Soils dissolve their, you know, chemical constituents, tannic acids, humic acids into the water, and they enrich it. Fungi and microorganisms, you know, microorganisms begin to feed on and break down these materials. Biofilms form. Crustaceans multiply. All these robust grasses might hang on for extended periods of time during the inundation. Others die off. Uh, some actually go into a dormant phase, sort of browning out and awaiting the time when the waters recede once again to turn the agapo into a terrestrial forest floor. In this rich, really dynamic environment, the fishes are able to find all these new food sources, new hiding places, new areas to spawn. Life simply flourishes. Each time I flood my urban agapo systems, I'm utterly fascinated by how life manages to sort of sort it out, not, to not only make it through, but to thrive. 
It's really cool to see the mini microorganisms swimming around in the aquarium, obviously feeding among the submerged grasses and other you know, materials when the water returns. Now, of course, I'll be the first to tell you that what you get out of this process is not what I'd ever label as a conventional aquarium system because of the high level of nutrients, the dense growth of terrestrial grasses and plants and rich terrestrial soil. It's certainly not a recipe for an aquascaping contest winner. It's not intended to be. This is just about a cool, you know, a cool idea. It's not about cool Instagram-ready aesthetics. Sure, the Urban Agapo systems look kind of cool, and yeah, they are pretty damn shareable on social media, I'll give you that. However, it's much more than that. The focus is on studying the function and the dynamics of this environment. If you're not, you know, if you're only looking for a perfect static aesthetics, you're bound to be ultimately disappointed. Because just like in nature, the terrestrial plants will ultimately slip into that dormant phase where they aren't all that crisp and green, and the water... You know, they'll become stringy, limp, and brown over time, and the water will be a little bit turbid, a little bit tinted. I find that utterly fascinating, and I think you might too when you consider it in this context. You know, this context. Now, again, this is easily confused with, and I suppose comparable to a dry start planted aquarium or the Wallstead method on a very superficial level. However, remember that we're talking about terrestrial plants and grasses and soils without any kind of sand cap. It's not designed to grow plants. It's designed to flood. <laughs> So sure, you can use some emergent tolerant aquatic plants in your urban agapo. I've done this a few times with great success and the added benefit that they typically look as good in the terrestrial phase as they do in the aquatic phase. Of course, you could also use riparian type plants like sedges and such, which are tolerant and in fact even require immersion in very most soils for you know relatively long periods of time for long-term health and growth. So some species of these plants are indeed found in such temporal environments in nature. So it goes without saying that you should experiment with them in the aquarium as well. Now, sure, playing with this type of setup brings together hobbyists from a number of different, you know, disciplines, vivarium and terrarium people, aquarists, planet tank enthusiasts, botanical style aquarium lovers. Hey, that's us. And sure, each party has their own unique take on this process, as well as accompanying criticisms of the process itself and the management. However, putting it all together is really the fun part. All sorts of fun variations are, you know, possible here. Remember, it's about trying, you know, to do something that's fascinating and interesting for yourself. It's not about trying to please some contest judge with this perfectly biotopic representation or ratio compliant aquascape. And of course, the look of silt, dead plants, roots, you know, random leaves and twigs and soil and all that stuff with tinted, turbid water is simply not everyone's idea of a cool tank. Although to me, you know, it's awesome. It's immediately apparent to anyone that sees our tanks that the look is quite different than what's been proffered as natural in recent years. And I guarantee that if you donned a snorkel and waded into one of these environments in nature, you'd understand exactly what we're trying to represent in our aquariums in like seconds. Does it get any better? I don't think so. And it all starts with a dry forest floor. So I encourage you to research this stuff a lot more. There's a lot of great information out there in the scholarly literature and even here, here in our blog. So stay creative, stay inquisitive, stay imaginative, stay inspired, stay relentless, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.